I am convinced that, well, along with other pastors, scholars, and theologians, that Psalm 2 is actually the second half of Psalm 1. Um, Psalm 2 stands as a part of an in, the introduction to the book of Psalms. And we could see kind of this in one of two ways. But the first way is that Psalm 1 says um, what the blessed life looks like, the two ways to life, either one, one way to life and the other to death. So two paths, um, you can either one to life, one to death. And then you have Psalm 2, which is how this path of life and path of death are lived out. So Psalm 2 shows us how the righteous um, look up to and look for the king of glory to reign and rule and have his sovereign hand over all things. And they look for him to, for their subsistence. They look for him for their blessedness. They look to him for all these things. While the other, the wicked, the, the perishing ones, the kings and rulers of this earth, they look for, um, they look to God as an enemy, as one they must subvert and one they must go against. And, and that's where you see the book, the rest of the book of Psalms go out from there. It, it kind of departs not from the Psalm 1, Psalm 2 ideas, but it just expands upon them. And in each book of the Psalms, so there's five books in Psalms, there's 450 uh, verses in Psalms, and they're divided up into these five books. And each book represents a, in some views, a book of the Pentateuch. Uh, the first one being the book of the law, or how God is, um, or not the book of the law, the book of creation, um, the wisdom of God, and yeah, you have the book of the law, you have all these other, you have the five books of the Torah, the, and they kind of overlay on the five books of the Psalms. These are um, crucial to understanding why Psalm 2 matters. Because it kind of just sounds like it's a, a psalm of, um, not lament, and now I'm off script, so I have no idea what the word actually is in my head. But it's a, it's a, it's a psalm that sounds like it's, um, can you help me out, the one where you rain fire down, Psalm 137. Anybody? Yes, imprecatory song, imprecatory song. So it sounds more like an imprecatory song than it does anything else. And that's just not the fact. The fact is, is it's setting the way of life before us. Um, the blessed life in uh, Psalm 1 the, the, and the blessed life in Psalm 2 are just the same sides of the same coin, two sides of the same coin. But the majority of our lives are seek, spent seeking this blessedness right? There's, it's, it's spent seeking pleasures of some type, whether that's financial security, social relevance, uh, family interdependence, or what have you. All of humanity is looking for some um, set of understanding uh, and dominating the world around us. It's, it's a, a, a trying to find its comfort and its pleasure, and it, that's because God has placed it in us innately to seek something outside of ourselves, right? To please ourselves. And within our society, we see this truth actually work itself out more and more each day. If you even look at the news, if you listen to Al Mohler's The Briefing, if you, um, any of these things, you hear the twinges of uh, people trying to find their pleasure, their um, goodness, their, um, their, their reality in something they've made up, right? Because they know best, supposedly. 
They, they know what's going to make them happy. And if that means that I have to redefine terms, if that means that I have to go and make everybody else believe what I believe, then that's what I'm going to do because I'm my own king and I'm my own God. And even those people, what's scary about this is that the Lord has seen fit that even inside of the church, you see whole churches doing this. And I think it's more or less in the same way that this psalm is going to reveal God's glory through judgment is that even in our churches, these churches who are succumbing to the, the social pressures and societal ills, it's going to show God's greatness, God's merciful hand, his sovereign judgment over the nations and even over his church and his kingship will not be denied. And so tonight we're going to look at Psalm 2. And that's basically what I want you to see is that God's lordship, the lordship of Christ will not be thwarted. And that God reigns. God reigns. And so we should joyfully serve his king. And we're going to see that Christ is this king and that Christ is God alone. Um, but that's what I want you to walk away with. If you have nothing else, these five words. God reigns. Joyfully serve his king. Psalm 2 is divided up into four stanzas, four, four sets of three verses. And it's really kind of neatly packaged so that it can be memorized and that we can see the main point of the whole psalm. And I'm going to give you where the main point is right now. Verse 6 and verse 7. If you want to take a look at it, those are the main points. That's why I'm saying God reigns, serve him joyfully serve his king um, is because saw number, uh, verse 6 and verse 7 uh, contain the exact point of this psalm. So the verse 1 to 3 is going to show us the faltering kings of earth and their, their, um, their vanity. Verses 4 to 6, we're going to see the unfailing king of heaven and his rule over these kings of earth. Verse 7 to 9, we're going to see the unfading treasure of God. And then in 10 to 12, we're going to be called to joyful service to his name. So let us hear Psalm 2 read. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits, who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. 
O Lord in heaven, holy is your name. And we ask now, Lord, that you would show us that your reign is eternal, that it is all-encompassing, that you would overwhelm us with the reality of your control. And Lord, that you would show us your glory in the midst of this psalm. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we want to see that God reigns and we are to joyfully serve his king. And in this first section, I've just called it the faltering kings of earth. And you can see why. He says, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? In fact, if you read this in Hebrew, it's, it's vocalized very similarly. Similarly, ugh, if I could talk, that would be great. Um, to the, the meditation on God's law in Psalm 1. So Psalm 1, 2, if you look up at the top, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. It's a very similar vocalization to the, the people's plot, that idea of people's plot. And the vocalization is meant to be a parallel. It's meant to show us that this Psalm 2 is part of what the wicked, who, who, who are these wicked people? Who are these people who will rage um, violently and plot in vain because the Lord is sovereign all over th- of all things. See, the psalmist intentionally draws our hearts to see the futility of the wicked men and their hearts. They will pass away like chaff and the wind before the breath of God and their plotting cannot and will not thwart our, our all-powerful God. We're to be encouraged even though the, the kings set themselves apart or against the Lord and his anointed. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. You see again another parallel with Psalm 1. And the, the blessed man does not stand or sit like sinners and scoffers. No, um, he, he does not sit that way, yet he delights in the law of the Lord. But these kings and these rulers conspire as if at a table trying to thwart their king. See, the coming together of these kings and rulers of the nations resembles more the men of Babel trying to construct the tower to reach the heavens. In reality, God came down and laughed at them. Even more so, it's, they, they are trying to do this with malice to overthrow God. They're not even just trying to make a name for themselves. They're actually seeking to overthrow the king of all creation and his anointed. And in seeking to do so, they actually say what their motive is. Let's burst our bonds apart. Let's cast away their cords from us. They want to be free of these commands, the burdens that God has placed upon them. But we know that our burden is not heavy. And yet it is light, the yoke um, Jesus says, my, follow me for my burden is light. And my, I'm not now, I'm totally off my rocker where I am. My yoke is lazy and my burden is light. Thank you, Johnny. Um, but they think that this yoke is a crushing yoke and the burden it will never get off their back. But see, in seeking to burst their bonds and cast off their cords, they seek liberation from the rich soil next to the streams of water that hold them to the banks of the river of life. And yet when they loose themselves, they will surely lose themselves in their sin. 
And they want to be free and great on their own terms, not on God's terms. And in, ses- in essence, they believe themselves to be gods, much like King Ahasuerus this morning, or even Haman and trying to make a name for themselves. Both want no responsibility and they want all the pleasures in this life. They want none of the pain that they cause themselves or others, but only the comfort that they can find in this world. So they try to burst the bonds of that responsibility from themselves. They try to loose themselves and uproot themselves from the streams of living water, not realizing that it's just going to lead to death. But isn't this true of us also? It seems like we can get lost in these, these ideas of why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Those are out there. They're not in here. But this is your heart and my heart also. These are us. This is us as we walk out our days. We constantly war and have war with ourselves, war with the spirit within us, war with God's best, and we continually settle for a second best, which is, by the way, death. You might be saved, and you are probably saved in this room if you are in here tonight. It's a prayer gathering. Um, But the reality is, is sometimes we choose death. We still choose our own flesh over what the Spirit has for us. We choose to contend with our Lord with proud and empty thoughts of, Lord, I know that I'm better than so-and-so. I know I've got this under control, so I'm going to take care of it. But this is just called rebellion. It may not be active plotting against your Lord, but it is raging against him. He has created you. He has brought you into existence. He has brought you to himself. He has brought you to the table. And yet you deny the very blood shed and the body broken when you make a selfish decision. We must examine ourselves, therefore, and lay down our plots and schemes to self-aggrandize or flattering ourselves like the kings of this world. No, we need to be calling upon the, the river and stream of life, the living water that satisfies the desert soul. If you're not a believer in this room, you know what I'm talking about. If you are a believer in this room, you definitely know what I'm talking about because you've been liberated from it. You've been placed by these streams of water. You know where your nourishment comes from. It is from God and God alone. So let's drink deeply of the word of life and run the race of the race that life in Christ demands. For you no longer must be tossed to and fro by the waves of rebellion, but are, you are now rooted in the banks of the river of life. So let us discard the way of the faltering kings. Let's discard the way of the old man. Let us run to the, the fountain of living water for your God reigns and let us joyfully seek to serve him as king. Point number two, we're in the unfailing king of heaven, verses four to six. He who sits in heaven's laugh. The Lord has something to say about this. Now the psalmist starts and he kind of brackets his whole thing with the first stanza is the psalmist speaking. The second stanza is God speaking. The third stanza will be his anointed speaking. And the fourth stanza, stanza is the wrap up, the conclusion of the um, psalmist, again, speaking. 
But here we see God speaking, and he says, he who sits in heaven laughs, and the, whole, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, the Lord sits and sovereignly reigns over the kings of men. And you notice the crescendo. He who sits in the heavens and laughs, the Lord holds them in derision, or, you know, like, uh, you, you have no idea what you're talking about. That it's a stupidity, well, life is stupidity. And then he would speak to them in their, his wrath to correct them and terrifying them in the, in the midst of that. So we go from laughter to terrifying fury. The crescendo in verses four and five can't be missed. And while they, the kings and rulers of the earth, sit and suppose they rule over their subjects, they are really subjects of God, the king of creation. Their very thoughts against him are their own sin and their own undoing. And as a result of their insolence, God asserts his presence. Notice he says he, he will speak to them in his wrath. In other words, the word also can mean rebuke them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. That is the result of when God asserts his presence into the unbeliever's life. It is a terrifying experience to be to encounter the living true God when you have no idea that there's a God outside of yourself. But he asserts his presence for many other reasons, not just to terrify. He asserts himself through storms of life in the believer's life. He does it through sickness. He does it with the occasional two by four over the head because Lord knows we all need it. All for the purpose of serving his glory and pointing us to him, to the God who is pure goodness and pure light. Because even when you're in your best days, Christian, even when you're in your best days, you still need the Lord. You have nothing apart from him, no good apart from him. So dwell in his presence. Dwell in his presence lest his wrath come upon you in your sleepy disposition. See, he's not, the only, he's not only the God who is there, but he is the God who is here now. We must wake up and we must realize it. And in verse six, we see that his holy hill shows us that what actually matters is the kingship of God alone. And God himself is the one that we should be looking to. He will not fail to execute his promises or sustain his plans to the end. No, who can subvert the plan of our Lord? The answer is no one, no one. There is no one like you, God. We sang it this morning. So why do we fret what is coming next when he is on the throne of creation? Why do we fret what is coming our way next when he sits on the throne of creation? In fact, there's actually a good way to deal with this. The psalmist, and uh, Calvin says it something like this. He, he says um, that the Psalms, the book of the Psalms, actually are the doorway to um, dealing with life's issues. That's my paraphrase of Calvin. That's not what he exactly said. But it is one of those things where you see all of life 
how you should be dealing with life inside of the Psalms. When your enemy comes against you, imprecatory Psalms. And when, when hardship comes, you, you cry out to the Lord. When joy is there, you have words to be spoken. And, and he gives us one, uh, a Psalm, the Psalmist, Lord himself, gives us a Psalm, Psalm 121, to show us the proper heart posture when we lack answers to questions and we're fearful for things. Psalm 40 tells us to cry out to the Lord, but Psalm 121 tells us where to lift our eyes. It says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep you, keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is not saying that we can subvert evil when it comes to our doorstep, but it doesn't come to our doorstep without being attended by God. And that this evil, whatever it might be, is for the purpose of bringing him glory in some way. So we have to ask ourselves, when we come up against sickness, this past week's been really rough for me, particularly. Um, from, from feeling sick and the pollen in the air and just not being able to breathe most of the time because of the pollen and even good, you know, pollen's a good thing. I realize that. It's not a good thing for me. And... Um, I have this question in my head, like, why, God, why? Uh, but I realize that there is a purpose for it. I just don't like the purpose for it. And so where should I be putting my eyes? It's not on the pollen. It's not on the medicine that may or may not. You can still kind of hear it in my voice. May or may not be helping me. But I should lift my eyes up to the hill where he has set his holy king. For he reigns over all of creation, even every bit of pollen that is moved around by the dust of the wind. I have no, nothing apart from him. The trees have nothing apart from him, and he is the one making it happen. Why am I not grateful for this, other than the fact that my eyes are hitch and hurt? <clears throat> but our God is in heaven, and he reigns over all of creation. So when we have questions of life, ask the Lord. Run to him. Ask him why it's happening. He may not give you a straight, straight answer. It might just be for his glory. But, and that's the only guaranteed answer, by the way. When the storms seem overwhelming, cry out to the Lord for a glimpse of his goodness. In all situations, lift your eyes to the one who is unfailingly set, who has unfailingly set his king on Zion's holy hill. For that unfailing king of heaven reigns over heaven and earth and his burden is light and gives life to all of that rest in him. Our God reigns. Let us joyfully serve him. Let's joyfully serve him because he contains all of the treasures of the creation for all treasures that he has as unfading treasures. Verse seven says, and it shifts again to the anointed one saying, I will tell of this decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The decree of the Lord is that the king of God has been anointed and placed 
on the throne. And when that happened in Israel, when that happened in ancient times, it was a celebration. It was not a, it was not a time to be solemn, but it was a time to be excited and happy for those things. But the kings of earth, they're not happy about this. And even if you think about back into 1 Samuel, no doubt you may recall the moment when Samuel anoints David, the last son of Jesse, after Saul is condemned for his transgression of burning incense on the altar. See, David was to be king at that moment, and he was declared to be the king at that moment, but he did not realize his kingship until much later, after running from Saul, after, you know, being in many battles, from running from all of the things that had... Uh, that had threatened his life, particularly Saul himself. He was still a son of God. He was still declared to be a man after God's own heart, even after he took the throne, even after he committed adultery with Bathsheba, even after he repented of that sin, even after his son died, even after he prayed Psalm 51. He's still a a man after God's own heart because he is a man full of humility, patience, and repentance. But that begotten son of the Lord is not the only begotten son of the Lord. He is a begotten son of the Lord. The Lord snatched up Israel as his own, calling him the son, his son. But there was one who came and is claiming the nations as their heritage and the ends of the earth his possession. He breaks them and will break them finally with a rod of iron. And he will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel for they cannot stand against his wrath. See, the Lord that we're talking about is none other than Christ Jesus himself. He is the judge over all creation. The one son who has been been begotten from eternity past. The doctrine of eternal generation is something that we as Christians hold onto dearly. For if he had not eternally generated, the Jehovah's Witnesses are right. And he was the first son of creation, created literally. But that is not how the Bible reads it. He's there from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation. And he does not leave the pages of Scripture. And every single word of Scripture screams his name and calls for his lordship. For his word, it will not return void. And in such a way that he will make the nations his heritage. That the Lord himself has already given the nations as his possession. He, in other words, he rules over the nations right now. He does it in a, uh, a non-visible way. For we know that we do not see everything that is being put under subjection to his foot. But one day, we will see that consummated. We will see his Lordship over the earth brought into its fullness. But for now, we rely on the promise that God has for us. He says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth of your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron. They will not come quietly. The kings of the earth and the rulers therein will not come easy. We have seen this. They are in opposition to the king of the Lord. They plot and rage they over, to overthrow his kingship, to usurp his authority. The Lord will rule over them whether they like it or not, however. His green pastures may smell like the stench of death for them. 
but we know them to be the essence of life. So I'm asking you right now, I'm asking you to live under and in those green pastures. I'm asking you to walk not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffer, but to meditate in the law of the Lord and delight in his law day and night. For that is the way to life. That is the way to avoid the rod of iron. That is the way to avoid being dashed like a potter's vessel. Notice how he, he puts it like this. It's a potter's vessel. Potter's vessel is continually remade, right? Even the clay that's being used is so brittle that it's intentionally made that way because it's, it's cheap. It's earthenware. It's something that they would put something in for a moment and only last, last for a few days sometimes. But they shatter so easily. And he doesn't need a rod of iron to break them, but that's what the, the result will be pieces like a potter's vessel. The reality of the vanity of the peoples flailing to grab authority from themselves comes down to this. No one rules without God, putting them in power, and no one has the power to usurp God's omnipotence. Those who submit to his authority are called the sons of God. Are you a son? Are you a daughter of God? So while... Man is a, David is a man after God's own heart. The nations were not given to him in its fullness. No, they remained out of reach. Only the one true and living God, only the true son of God, God the son, Jesus Christ, our Lord will we see in creation be put into subjection to him. While this is true now, he is king over all things. Visibly and fully he will be recognized for what he already is by those same kings and nations. Sovereign Lord of all creation. It is he that we must receive. It is Christ that we must subject ourselves to. It is Jesus that we must follow if we are to be called sons of God also. How might we become sons of God? Maybe we are sons of God, daughters of God. Maybe we are children of God. Maybe we are in Christ, just all these, metaf- all these ways of saying it. Then why do you run and rage from his goodness and his glory? Why do you see his yoke as not easy, but something burdensome to obey? No, he's showing you the paths of life. He's giving you the streams of water. He's giving you the wisdom that sustains this world. Would you stand on those banks? Would you drink from those waters? Would you Reject the faulty kings of this world and accept the one, look for the king that is already reigning and ruling over heaven and earth. For when you see that, you see that God reigns on heaven and earth and you will joyfully serve him, Christ the king. We must repent of our sins and live in thanksgiving for, for us being made his possession. We already are part of his possession. Here's the thing. Everybody is his possession. There is a special possession and then there are the possession made for his wrath to display his glory through his judgment. Which will you be? Will you be one who reaches out to the son of glory now and gets to revel and rejoice in what he has done? Or will you sit in fear and tremble at his name in eternity. And we turn ourselves 
to verses 10 to 12 as we wrap up. He says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and perish, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. See, the psalmist returns in his own voice to serve the wisdom of God to the kings and rulers of this earth. He returns to us to show us that the wisdom of God is to joyfully serve our king and to do so in the words of the apostle Paul in Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The wise thing to do is to operate with the knowledge that you are not king over your own world, that you are not even in control over the next minute. In fact, I, this might sound a little crass, but think about it. Do you determine when you go to the bathroom? Or was the last drink that you took determined when you go to the bathroom? You don't have control over your own bodily elements. You must and you are subject to something higher than yourself. So, now, let's kiss the sun. This is probably better rendered in a a way. Submit to the sun. Submit to his lordship. For he cares for you. He, in fact, he works and wills through you even at the point where he tells you when you need to go to the bathroom when you don't. That's a praise God moment, right? Because, uh, yeah. There's just things about this, about this life that are so in a minutia form, in, in a small form, that you don't realize that God himself is the one making it work. Praise God that he is the one who is allowing us to be here. Praise God that he's allowing me to stand for who knows what would have happened to me you know, 10 years ago at this point. I probably wouldn't be standing before you in a couple of incidents I've had. But God has been gracious. And in his loving kindness, he has been steadfast to his promise to me. So kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in his way. Not just the way. You perish in his way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. We find the remedy for the vain raging against the Lord. Submit to the son, the judge of all the earth, and relent from your own entitlement. And as we conclude, this text is actually quoted second most in the entire New Testament, only to Psalm 110. The New Testament writers like it a lot because, well, as we should, is because it shows us that our sovereign Lord is sovereign over all people and that not Rome, not the United States, not China, not anybody in, in history can control God's people and can control God's will but he stands in derision above them. In Acts 4, 24 to 28, we see a recounting of uh, the Lord's sovereignty over all creation. The apostles had been jailed and tried for for the crime of preaching Christ crucified and for healing a crippled man. And after they were released, they rejoiced and prayed this prayer. Listen up. Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, 
who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why, do the, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What a prayer. Let us make it our own. Likewise, let us become humbled under his sovereignty. Let us repent of our empty thoughts and put every one of them in subjection to Christ, holding every thought captive for his name and his glory. The kings of the earth are powerless to face in the face of God, omnipotent. And the nations, every single person will acknowledge his lordship, whether they like it or not. So let us honor him with our lives and forever submit to him in his presence. He is king over all creation. Our God reigns. Let us joyfully serve him.